Well, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to uh, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 39 today. That's where we're going to be as we continue in our, our story of Joseph. And last week, we began a series on the story of Joseph to help us see how God uses all sorts of people to help fulfill his divine purposes. And the story of Joseph is really not just a story about one person, but it's a story about many people. How God uses all sorts of people, and they all play different roles in order to bring about what was God's end goal in the story of Joseph, which we, we read last week in Genesis chapter 50. So at the end of the story, God reveals what was the, the goal in mind of all of this, and that is what people meant for evil— God had an ability, he has the power, and he has, you know, he has the, uh, his ways, he can turn it into something good. He, and he used this situation, this story, ultimately to save his people. What is unique, though, about Joseph's story is that unlike the other patriarchs in the story of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who demonstrate how humans fall short of the image of God, Joseph's story is a little bit different. In fact, we see Joseph, over time, slowly turning back into the image of God. That certainly we see this theme develop in today's story, and what happens in the house of Potiphar and with Potiphar's wife. Just to recap for those of you who weren't here last week, the story of Joseph is about a, a somewhat spoiled yet highly favored son of Jacob who is given a dream by God. And it's a dream of prosperity. It's a dream of exaltation, of others bowing down before Joseph. And yet instead of being exalted as you might imagine one would be if God gives you a dream, the, the episode ends last week with Joseph in a pit betrayed by his brothers, and sold into slavery as he is taken down into Egypt. And I want you to really pay attention in the story today and really throughout this entire story to the word down. Remember that words and, image and, and items and events all have meaning. Well, the word down has that sort of meaning. While Joseph becomes the victim of human trafficking, the brothers go home and they return to their father Joseph's garment. Remember the significance of the garment, this, this robe of royalty. And as a way of deceiving their father, Jacob's name means deceiver, the deceiver is being deceived, they dip his garment in goat's blood to make it seem as if an animal has taken Joseph, has sort of ripped him to pieces, and here they are returning back to their father, their brother's robe. Yet, and this is how Jacob responds to this false flag. He says, I am going to die and meet my son down in the grave. I'm going to die and meet my son down in the grave. So we have Joseph going down to Egypt, and we have now Jacob wanting to go down to Sheol, to the grave. And before Jacob's story begins to trend upwards, we need to see it spiral even more downwards including what happens to Joseph in the story of today in Genesis 39. And the story begins with these words in verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. There's that word down. He's been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, has bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. 
So we see in Genesis 39, the story picks up back again where we left off in Genesis 37. Now, if you're a, a keen observer, you'll realize that we've skipped a chapter in the book of Genesis. We've gone from Genesis chapter 37 to 39. And in between Genesis 37 to 39 is probably one of the most strangest stories, I think, in all the Bible. It's something that probably you're not going to hear a sermon on anytime soon. I'll leave it for you to go home and read what happens in the story. But in Genesis 38, we actually see what is happening to the brothers of Joseph while Joseph is going down to Egypt. We see that much time aspires in chapter 38 without any mention of Joseph's name. And you, the reader, on purpose, are supposed to be left asking the question, what has happened to Joseph in this time? In these years that have gone by, where is Joseph and what has happened to him? And we are given the answer to that question in chapter 39. And the answer is, is that the Lord was developing Joseph's faith. See, in chapter 37, Joseph has faith, but his faith is small. His faith was in its infancy because faith is like a seed. And, and seed needs much time to grow and develop. It needs proper sunlight and water to grow. But no matter how much sunlight and water a seed gets, if I hold a seed in my hand out in the sunlight and I put water on that seed, no matter how long I hold it out there like that, my seed is not going to grow. Why? Because a seed needs to be buried in the ground. It needs to be placed in the dirt. And unless my seed is buried, my seed is not going to grow. And we see in Egypt, Joseph's faith is buried in the dirt. It's in the soil of some of the most difficult circumstances a person would ever have to go through in all of the Bible that we see Joseph's faith developed. Because that is where faith grows. That is where faith is developed, in the dirt. Not in the good times. Our faith doesn't grow in the prosperous times, in the easy times, in the 2019 times of our lives. No, our faith grows in the hard times, in the 2020 to 2022 times, in the difficult seasons, in the dirty and gritty moments of life. That is where God develops and grows our faith. God wants our faith to grow, to mature, to spring to life. And he will allow you and I to sometimes in life be thrown into the fiery furnace. To teach our faith that wherever we walk in this life, we do not walk in this life alone. But God will be with you. God walks with you whether you are in a palace or a pit or a prison. Genesis 39, 2-6 says that the Lord was with Joseph. If you have a pen, feel free to underline that in your Bible. The Lord was with Joseph because that really is the main point of this entire story. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord had caused all he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. 
So the Lord is with Joseph. You know, from one moment, Joseph is highly favored in his father's house to the next moment, Joseph is horribly forgotten in the house of his master Potiphar, who is, as the text tells us, is the captain of Pharaoh's guard. So think of Potiphar like the chief of police, or he would be known as the, the chief executioner in Pharaoh's army. Just imagine this is not a this is not a, a, a nice guy. This is not a laid back guy. This is an intense fellow. This is a guy who's who's done some things, who's seen some things, who has gotten to his place uh, not by accident, but has worked his way up the chain. And while even Joseph, yet even while Joseph is forgotten by his family, there's never been a moment in Joseph's life where Joseph is forgotten by his father in heaven. And that really is the main point of the story because, you know, not the, the main point of the story is not through Joseph's highs and lows, but through Joseph's highs and lows, God's presence remains with Joseph. You know, the Bible tells us in Psalm 139 that you can extend to the highest of, of the heavens. Or you can go down, there's that word down, to the lowest of lows, to the grave. But the question is asked, where can I run from your presence? Where can I get away from your presence? And the answer is nowhere. We see God speaking through the prophet Isaiah that when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you go through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, the flames will not consume you. See, these are not just words. These are the testimonies of God's people. This is the testimony of Moses leading the children of Israel through the waters. Through the Red Sea, and God is with them. This is the testimony of the three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the story of, of Daniel, who are thrown into the fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar. Yet when he peeks into the furnace, he sees not three men, but four. Jesus said his very last words to us in Matthew's Gospel, I will be with you always even to the ends of the ages. So what that means for you and I is that we should not interpret God's love by our circumstances, but rather we need to interpret our circumstances by God's love. Let me say that again. We should not interpret God's love, his presence, his promise, his faithfulness by our circumstances. Rather, interpret your circumstances by God's love, by God's presence, by God's promises. Because here's what I can promise you today. Here's what I can give you full assurance of. If you remain faithful to Jesus, when all is said and done in the story of your life, when the story of your life is written and the ink on the pages is dry, somewhere in your story, and I'm going to bet that it's probably in the lowest point of your life, there will be the words written that the Lord was with you. The Lord was with Kathy. The Lord was with Liz. The Lord was with Mark. The Lord was with you. Now, not only was the Lord with Joseph, it says, but that the Lord's favor was on Joseph's life. He was a blessed man. He was blessed with what you and I might call the Midas touch. Everything he touches, it turns to gold. 
And it says that success followed Joseph wherever he went and whatever he did. And Potiphar is a smart man, and he recognizes that. And he even attributes this success, this favor on Joseph's life to the Lord. And so he wisely decides to put Joseph in charge of his entire household. So that it says that the only decision that Potiphar had to concern himself in his own house was what sort of food he was going to put in his mouth. That's how much favor and, and, and empowerment Joseph had. And it says in, in, in the text here that God didn't just bless Joseph, but God blessed Potiphar's house for Joseph's sake. Now stop there a moment. What do you mean? God blessed Potiphar's house for Joseph's sake. That doesn't seem very fair, does it? I mean, what does it mean? Why would God do that? And the answer is, truthfully, that it, this is not a story about Joseph's success. This is a story about God's faithfulness. And from very early on, God made a promise to Abraham that through his lineage, through his seed, all the families of this earth would be blessed. It doesn't just say that Abraham would be blessed. It says through your name, through your lineage, all families on earth will be blessed. And in Jacob's life, Joseph's father, we see glimpses of that. In fact, Jacob is a young man in the house of his uncle Laban. Is Laban, his uncle, says, he says, this prosperity that has come to my house is a result of Jacob being in my house, being in my presence. He, he recognizes that Jacob coming to him has brought this prosperity and blessing upon his life. But it's through Joseph's sojourning in Egypt that we begin to see this promise of blessing really come to fruition. But that still doesn't seem fair, right? That doesn't seem right beyond God being God and getting to do whatever God wants to do. It doesn't seem to really fit with our understanding of blessing. You know, one of the things I've learned uh, is that every culture and, and every generation gets some things right about God and then there are things that they just get wrong about God. You know, my studies... Uh, as I've continued my education, uh, this year I've, because of the, uh, the, the required courses in my, in, my, uh, in my program, I've had to study the history of the church. And I've studied the history of the church before, but it's been interesting to look at the history of the church. Last semester it was the Reformation. This semester has been the history of the church in North America. And what I've seen and what I've observed is that in every sort of stage, in every sort of season of the church, there are things that the church absolutely gets right, like knocks it out of the park. And then there are things that they are so dead set certain that they are right about God. But we, the historians, look back upon that and we're like, man, they missed that one. They missed that one. And I think here, I'm just going to go on a limb here, that one of the things I think we've gotten wrong in the West in this moment is our understanding of how God blesses his children. Go with me here. Specifically the idea that when it comes to God's blessings, that the person who God wants to bless most is me. That God wants to bless me and to bless me with what? Prosperity favorable circumstances, wealth and health and freedom and a good life and a good home and all sorts of things like that. You know, years ago, I was speaking with a, an older couple in our, in our church here after service who, were, who are real estate agents, very successful real estate agents and wonderful godly people. They, they are. And I was just sort of lamenting to them this was back, I think, 2018, 2019, how everywhere my wife and I, we've moved in our season, in our, in our marriage, everywhere we've gone, the housing market, when we arrived, just exploded. 
And, you know, I said, we saw this in Abbotsford. When we moved to Abbotsford, the housing market went right through the roof. Then we moved to Victoria in 2015. The housing market went right through the roof. It went crazy. And then we moved to Ottawa in 2018. And guess what happened around that time? Does anyone remember? Housing market exploded. And I was just saying, why is it that everywhere we go, the housing market just goes crazy? And she says, and the, the, the woman says to me, she says very seriously, looked at me and said, well, maybe you have the Lord's anointing on your life. I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> what, what does that mean? She said, well, maybe wherever you go, you have the anointing that you bring the Lord's, you know, the prosperity on the land that you go to. You know, wherever you go, the God blesses the, fin- the financial market, the real estate market, wherever you go. And I, and I said, that's not fair. I don't want to go somewhere and then the Lord blesses the landlord while I rent their house. I want the landlord to bless me. <laughs> I want the landlord to sell his house to me for under market value right before the housing market goes through the roof. Funny enough, that's exactly what happened in 2020 to us. But in 2018, you know, I just couldn't imagine the idea of God wanting to bless others and make others rich just because, you know, we showed up in a place. Now, I say that that story a little bit facetiously. But, you know, does God want to bless his children with good gifts? Absolutely he does. God wants to bless you. God loves to bless you. You are his children, and he loves to bless his children. But what if the primary purpose of God's blessings is not so that you grow in prosperity and favorable circumstances, but that God blesses you so that through your life, you can become a blessing to others. What if you were blessed to be a blessing? See, a biblical understanding of blessing will show us that you are not blessed when your life is filled with favorable circumstances. You are blessed when whatever circumstance you find yourself in, whether you are in a prison or a palace, God's presence goes with you. And the Beatitudes show us this. Jesus says, you know, not blessed are those who have big homes. He says, no, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are hunger and thirst. Why? Why are they blessed? And the answer is, is because usually we see that with them is the accompaniment of God's presence. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be what? Comforted. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. So let it never be our purpose to serve God so that we are blessed. But we must serve God so that others may be blessed through our blessings. You know, the Mary, the mother of Jesus, said that from now on, all generations would call her blessed. Why do we call Mary blessed? Is it because she had a big, you know, big house and a fancy car and nice clothes? If anything, Mary's life was hard. She was scorned right, by her neighbors. She was an outcast as a, as a young girl who was sort of, was with child out of, out of marriage. She raised her family on her own. There's so, some evidence to suggest that Joseph passed away early on. She watched her son, the promise of God, be executed, be murdered. Yet from her faithfulness came the fulfillment that God 
promised Abraham, through your lineage, through your family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And from Mary came the greatest blessing this world will ever know, that is being blessed with the Lord's salvation and his presence. So today, if God has given you some success in this life, if he's put some, a little bit of extra money in your bank account, never let yourself be fooled into thinking it's about you. You are blessed to be a blessing. So ask yourself, who am I supposed to bless? Who am I supposed to lift up? And even if you have absolutely nothing to give, and Nathan, you've made a great point, if you have absolutely nothing to give, don't ever let yourself be deceived in thinking that the only way God blesses his people is through finances. Maybe it's just your presence. Maybe it's a phone call, an encouraging word, a lending hand. I love what it says in Proverbs 15, 16, better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Better a little bit with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Better to be in the pit with God's presence than to be in the palace with no God's presence. And that is Joseph's testimony. Joseph is a slave. He is a slave that doesn't stop him from being a faithful servant and giving himself fully to the situation that he found himself in. He says, I'm here. There's nothing I can do to change my circumstances. The Lord is with me, so I'm just going to give myself fully to that, that situation, that place I find myself in. And for some time, we see things go pretty good in Joseph's life. You know, he ascends to the top of, of Potiphar's house. He's put over top of all of the affairs of the house. Yet, dun, 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 something shifts here. Get ready for the segue. Verse 6. Now Joseph was, a, was handsome in form and appearance. Uh-oh. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put you know, everything he has in my church. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. The scene is set. Joseph is a handsome dude. He's chiseled. He's ripped. And it doesn't hurt that he's a rising star in Potiphar's house. How many of you know success can be attractive, right? It can be an attractive attribute. At least that's the was the case for Potiphar's wife. Now, we don't know why Potiphar's wife takes an interest in Joseph. We don't know what the marriage dynamics were like in, in her home. What we do know is that in Egyptian culture, that the women, Egyptian women, were given more uh, liberty and more freedom than other women in other cultures. It was actually quite normal for women to venture outside of marriage the same way men would do so in Egyptian culture. But there are some of you today here, when you hear the, a sermon, when you hear a message on the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, there's only one sort of principle, one sort of application that you think of, that it's about one thing and one thing only, and that is temptation. We hear the story. Now, I grew up in, in youth group culture, okay? And their story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife would make an appearance about once a year. 
one time a year this story. And as soon as the pastor would be like, we're going to talk about Joseph in Potiphar's house with Potiphar's wife. We were all like, oh, here it comes. Here comes the talk. Here comes the, the, the sermon about temptation. And, and maybe so. I mean, there's a lot of good principles, right? There's things that we can sort of draw from what Joseph does. But it doesn't really say that Joseph was sexually attracted to her or that he desired Potiphar's wife, does it? And believe me, I've read this story many times. As someone who's grown up being told, this is about temptation, I've read this over and over again, and yet I cannot find any evidence that Joseph is struggling to say no or he was tempted to say yes. It only says that he refused. He had no interest. He said no. And I wonder if the reason why we so easily associate this story with with Joseph and temptation is because Joseph is a male and Potiphar's wife is a female. And we just naturally assume that if a female is coming on to a male, that of course Joseph is tempted. I mean, what, what do you think he would be? But what if Joseph wasn't tempted? What if our tendency to associate this story with being about Joseph's sexual desire is a psychological projection onto the story of our own struggle, of our own cultural obsession with sex? What if the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife is not about temptation? What if he's not running away from temptation, but he's running away from her as the victim? Why I say all this is because this is not the first time in the story of Genesis where a patriarch is involved in a scandal. Well, it's not the first time in Joseph's story. We have his sister. We won't need to go into the details there. We have his brother, Reuben. We have his own father with, the, with his two wives who are sisters. But what in fact is happening here in this story is a reversal of a very well-known plot in the patriarchal narratives. See, both Abraham and Isaac being in a foreign land, we're in a foreign land where it just so happened that in that foreign land, their beautiful wives were being sought by foreign rulers and were wrongly brought an offer to that ruler by their husbands. And now here in Joseph's story, you have a handsome patriarch, Joseph, being sought by the wife of a foreign ruler. You see what's happening here? Unlike the other instances where God needs to step in and intervene in in Abraham and Isaac, that God will step in and make the situation stop, will spare their wives, or the moral purity of the ruler prevents this harm from happening. In Joseph's story, it's not God who intervenes, but it's his own righteousness that saves the day. She says, lie with me, and Joseph refused. He said, no. It doesn't say he wanted to say yes, and he said no. It just said he said no. He refused. And, he, and the reason that is that he said, my master has given me everything. And I cannot do this great wickedness and sin against God. See, what sets Joseph apart from his forefathers, who all fell short of God's expectations, is that Joseph doesn't fall short. In fact, he responds in total trust and obedience. You know, Potiphar's wife will even later catch him alone and will literally try to drag him off to bed with her. And he just says, no, he doesn't even entertain it. He says, my master has been so good to me. How many of you know it's true today that your master has been so good to you? Isn't that truth enough of why you and I should not even entertain the idea of sin? Because God has been so good to us? Because God has been so faithful to us? 
And he says, I can't do this thing against God. I can't even entertain this wickedness because I have so much reverence for his name. I fear the Lord so much that I can't even entertain the thought of doing this wickedness. Joseph's righteousness was on display. It was a fear of the Lord that says, it doesn't matter what I want or I don't want, I can't and I won't. I know God has been there for me, but now this is my opportunity to be there for God. You know, Joseph is fulfilling the promise that God made to his forefather Abraham in Genesis 18:19, when God says, For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. It was Joseph doing what was righteous, what was just, that brought fulfillment to God's promises. You see, Joseph's success in the face of sin was meant to bring balance to the stories of his ancestors who experienced so much failure in the face of sin. They fell so many times, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here's the thing, never once did God fail in his faithfulness towards them. God remained faithful even when they fell short in their righteousness. He remained faithful in his promises. And that's no different in yours and mine life. That even when you and I fall short of the glory of God and we sin, which we all have and we all will, God will remain faithful to you. And he will remain faithful to forgive. There will never be a moment where God said, wow, that's one too many times. Oh, you crossed the line now. No, there's never once, there never will be a moment when God will not forgive you in his faithfulness. But God's faithfulness towards us should never, ever, ever be used as an excuse to sin. His willingness to forgive us does not discount the necessity of you and I responding to God with obedience and faithfulness in every situation. But responding to God with obedience and faithfulness is never a result of our own willpower, is it? It's not... Ten ways to not sin against God in Joseph's life. Ten ways you and I can say no to temptation. No, the only possible way you and I can live righteously, that is to live a life that says yes to God and says no to sin, is by having our sins washed clean, washed white as snow by the blood of the Lamb, and allowing God to remove our hard hearts and put in us a new heart and a new spirit. Ezekiel 36, 27 says, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's not by you and your own willpower and your strength that you walk in God's statutes. It's the spirit of God within you that enables you to obey his rules and his statutes. And so it can hardly be a coincidence that there's only one person in the entire book of Genesis, there's only one patriarch who is said to have the Lord's Spirit, uh, the Lord, the Spirit of God put within them. And do you want to guess who that is? That's Joseph. So, what does this all mean? It means that when it comes to following Jesus, it is a two-step process that you and I need to take. It is two steps that every Christian, every believer, every person who wants to say yes to God and says no to sin, they need to take. And the first step is to walk the step of faithfulness. 
to remain faithful to God through every circumstance, through every season, through every challenge, to recognize that whatever I am placed in a situation that is not to my liking, that they're in that moment that God is with me and that God is going to do something to develop my faith through it. So I'm going to walk in faithfulness. And the second step that we need to take then, if I take one step of faithfulness, the second step I need to take is a step of righteousness. The step that says, in that moment, I'm not going to say no. I'm not going to say yes to my flesh. I'm not going to say yes to to my sinful nature. But I'm going to say yes to God because the Spirit of God is within me and has enabled me. And I'm going to walk this life, this journey, by walking in faithfulness and walking in righteousness and walking in faithfulness and walking in righteousness. And over time, God's Spirit will enable in you the, the power, the ability, the strength to say yes to God and say no to sin. To live as Jesus lived, to do what Jesus did. And it says that, you know, Potiphar's wife would call out to Joseph day by day by day. How many of you know that saying no to sin is a daily struggle? It's a, it's a daily step that you and I have to take. We have to wake up every day, and whatever happened yesterday, whatever battles were won and lost, when you wake up today, when you woke up this morning, it is a fresh new battlefield. And we have to wake up and say, God, I need you today. God, I need you to strengthen me through your spirit. God, I say yes today to you. I choose you today, and I say no to sin. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, and then follow me. Daily, we need to make the decision to wake up and pray, God, help me. God, I take up my cross. God, I want to run closer to you so I can run further away from my sin. So today in closing, what, ha- what happens in the story, sort of the, in the conclusion of the story, is that one day all alone, she, she tried to pull Joseph away and he refuses. And in this exchange, this physical exchange, Joseph's garment is left in her hands. What is it with Joseph and garments? It's always his, his sweater that is ending up in the wrong places. And she, you know, falsely accuses Joseph of, you know, trying, of trying to rape her. He, he, she, she makes a false accusation against him. And Potiphar's anger, you know, because of what his wife has accused his servant of doing, it says that his anger was kindled. It was aroused. But I want you to notice what happens. It says that his anger is aroused, but he has Joseph thrown into prison. Now, here's the thing. Someone in that day who was accused of attempted rape, the charge for that crime was execution. It was was execution. It was death. And you would think that the chief executioner in Pharaoh's army, if he believed that his slave was guilty of this charge being made against him, that he would have no trouble putting Joseph to death. But instead, he has him thrown into prison. So Joseph goes down into a pit. He rises up in Potiphar's house. And now he goes down back into prison. But notice how the story, this chapter, this episode, if you would, episode two, ends. It ends the same way it began in Genesis 39, 21 to 23. How did it begin? The Lord was with Joseph. Here's how it ends. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge over all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, 
because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. There are three words, three words that unify every episode in Joseph's life. But the Lord. But the Lord. And maybe today in your story, there are those three words somewhere in your story. Whatever, you know, circumstance, whatever season, whatever difficulty you find yourself, what if, well, what if you today in faith were to simply write those words down on paper and in the next, the next line just say, but the Lord. But the Lord. But the Lord. Let me tell you in mind what my story says, where my but the Lord story is inserted. You see, unlike Joseph... I have found myself enslaved and imprisoned for something I did do. That is, I have sinned against God. That is, I have transgressed God's ways and have fallen short of the glory of God. I deserved, unlike Joseph, to be sentenced to prison. I deserved to to have my sin come with a sentence of being punishable by death. And if I have indeed sinned against God, God in his perfect righteousness and in his holiness would be perfectly justified in his ways to sentence me to death for the wrongdoings I have committed against him and his creation. But God. Ephesians chapter 2, 4 to 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Today, I want you to know that Jesus has taken your place. He has borne your punishment of your sin and what you were sentenced to death, essentially, for your transgressions against God, Jesus took that penalty. He, he, he died in your place and he did all that. Why? So that you could be made alive together with Christ so that you could live, not just eternally, not just when you die, you get to go to heaven and all is good and well, but that here on earth too, you can live righteously and you can live faithfully. Never once has God forgotten you. Never once will he leave you. But this is how he shows his love for you today, that while you and I are sinners, Christ died for us. So I want to invite you today, if you have never before in your life, if this is a first-time decision for you to say, you know, to, I, 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 want to, I want to be made alive in Christ. I want to live in the way that, that God has been so faithful to me. Now I want to return that faithfulness and return that righteousness towards him. Let me know today, that decision, if it's a first-time decision, the Bible says that when you make that decision, you are essentially, you are reborn. And so walking in faithfulness and walking in righteousness, like a little baby learning how to walk, takes time, doesn't it? It has to be taught. It has to be developed. But today it begins with you just making a decision by you saying yes to God and saying no to sin. And know today that when you say no to sin, it's not you saying no to sin that washes away your sins, but it's through your confession that Christ will wash away all your sins. And the Bible says you will be made white as snow. So today, I just want to invite you to say yes to God and say no to your sin. And if you've made that decision before, to just re-invite you today. Maybe you've wandered off the path. Maybe you have, you have, you know, drifted. And more often than not, you've been saying yes to your flesh, yes to your sin, and less and less saying yes to God and His righteousness. If that's you today, I just want to invite you onto the path of following him today in faithfulness and righteousness. See, God is, is so good in his mercy, but God in his mercy is so willing to forgive us. 
So let's run to him today. If you hear him calling, run to him. Let's pray. Lord, we, we, we stop now, Lord, after this wonderful morning it has been in your presence. Lord, thank you for those three words in every person's story, but the Lord. I don't know, I can't speak for everyone here, Lord, but when I look back on my life, I look at the key moments in my life when I was heading off in a certain direction or I found myself in a certain situation, but somewhere the bridge that brought me back to you was but the Lord. I didn't find my way back to you. You came and found me. And so, Lord, today we just want to take, we want to follow you with those two steps, Lord, that we saw Joseph, he walked his journey with, faithfulness and righteousness. He remained faithful to you in the hardest moments of his life. And when he was tested and when he was, when he was put to the test, he didn't even waver. He's, he, in his righteousness, he stepped and he said no to sin. And God, we want to also do that as well in our own life, in our own journey. God, when, when sin comes our way, and we know sin is a daily battle, sin is a daily struggle, Lord, we wake up today and there are tests and temptations and trials that don't, we don't even know are waiting for us, even in this day. But Lord, like Joseph did, and ultimately Christ as you did, Lord, we want to come and appear before you blameless. Lord, and we just ask that the Spirit of God enable in us an ability to obey your, your rules and to observe your statutes in every situation. God, we know that in Christ and through your Spirit, Lord, we can do this. We can walk righteously. But it's not our own works, Lord. Our righteousness and our own power is nothing but filthy rags. But Lord, when we are clothed ourselves with the garment of righteousness, that comes only through your Spirit. Lord, we can say yes to you today and we can say no to sin. Help us today, we pray, Lord. Help us today, Lord. If anyone has prayed that prayer for a first time, Lord, I pray they know today and they are confident that if anyone is in Christ, and that's what happens when we say yes, we become in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. I pray they walk today in that newness. They live in that newness. As they learn how to follow you, I pray that when they stumble, when they fall, they do not fall away but they get back up and continue to walk the journey of faith, faithfulness and righteousness. In your name we pray, amen.